So before I had gotten sick, I actually had my second message just about written uh, for our revival series. In fact, I go on a walk every Friday with my sermon notes and just kind of talk to people, pray, go through my sermon. And I, I should have known that I was getting sick, and my kids uh, make fun of me about this, but I was on a walk. Uh, I was so tired, I hit a park. I leaned against the backstop just to rest, and before I knew it, an hour had passed. I tell you, it was the best hour of sleep I've had in a long time, though. But I should have known I wasn't feeling well. I had my sermon written. I intended on preaching it that Sunday. That didn't happen. I'm going to come back to that message, but I'm going to table it because I want to share a message with you that has come out of a personal struggle that I have had. And I think this personal struggle I've had has everything to do with spiritual warfare, or specifically, revival. And there is an enemy who doesn't want us to experience spiritual revival, right? Now, if you remember, a couple weeks ago when I kicked off this series, I said the word revival in Hebrew, and then the Latin word from which we get the word revive, simply means to live again. Now, obviously, God is speaking metaphorically because if you're alive in Christ, you will never become unalive in Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, you no, no longer will ever be dead in trespasses and sins. So he's speaking metaphorically. And the illustration you might recall me using would be of someone being in a spiritual coma. They're alive, but barely they're hooked up to all kinds of life support stuff. They're on a gurney. Their heart monitor isn't doing so well. They're alive, but barely. Now, the thing about being in a spiritual coma, though, is you don't know that you're in a coma because people in a coma, well, they're not aware they're in a coma, right? And just out of personal confession, that's exactly where I found myself in a spiritual coma. Let me put it down like this. I did not, I went through several days, I did not want to read the Bible. I did not want to pray. I didn't want to tell anybody about Jesus. You guys ever been there? And here's the rub. We all go through that, right? We all go through that. Our, our spiritual temperature, it ebbs and it flows for all of us, right? But usually when I would hit that space, the duty thing would kick in. Not duty in the sense of legalism, like God will be really impressed if I read his word. Not like that, but duty in the sense of this is going to be really healthy for me even though I'm not fueling it in the moment. And, and believing by faith that that duty will give way to delight, which is what happens when you sit at the feet of the Lord. I'm telling you, I didn't even have that. Nada, zero, flatline. I just did not give a rip at that moment. And it wasn't just, you know, being sick, and I, was, I slept a lot for a few days. I, even coming out of that, like, still not feeling great, but, but I felt like, Beyond what was going on in my life spiritually, physically, there was something happening demonically. So I, 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 just, I just went to the Lord and said, Lord, this is not good. This is not healthy. This is unfamiliar terrain for me. What is going on? Not just being a pastor, but 
good night just being a Christian, right? What is going on? And so I just turned to the Lord, and he so graciously and sovereignly led me to Ephesians chapter 6, the scripture that Nick read this morning. And the answer hit me, boom, squarely on the jaw. There is an enemy that most decidedly does not want us to experience revival. There is an enemy who will do whatever he can and whatever it takes to keep us in a spiritual coma. And I spent hours and hours in this text, not even, honestly, not even thinking about the sermon. After all, I had my next sermon written. And what I walked away with is this unmistakable truth. We are in a fight. And therefore, we must fight back. There is a spiritual conflict going on. And the conflict was trying to put me on the sideline. Have you ever been there? And so this message is a single word called the action, that we need to fight. And of course, I'm not talking about in the physical, right? For the weapons of our warfare, not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So here's how I'm going to walk this text. We're going to first of all look at this plain and profound reality. There's a conflict going on. Then second of all, we're going to look at the enemy. He is a nefarious, invisible, but very real foe. And then finally, our call to action, our responsibility, which is to fight. Now, before we get to that, I want you to look at verse 10. What's the first word of verse 10? Finally. What's he doing there? He's making sure that we don't look at this passage on what's called the panoply or the armor of God in isolation. We don't want to just take this little pericope or this little section and preach it on its own. No, it's connected to the, the book at large. And I would summarize Ephesians 1 through 6 with God's plan to do four things, every, which one, and every one of them the, the enemy wants to fight. We first of all read about in Ephesians 1 and 2 of God's plan through the gospel to make dead people spiritually alive. And if you're a Christian, what happened is, though you were dead in trespasses and sins, God made you alive with Christ. So that you're no longer a children of wrath, a child of wrath, you're actually a child of God, adopted and beloved. But now as believers, the enemy wants you to doubt the power that was exerted to raise you from the dead. And that's why in Ephesians 1 and 18 and following, Paul prays for three things for these Ephesian believers, that the eyes, literally the eyes of their cardia, of their heart would be open so that they would understand three things, the third of which would be the surpassing power he exerted in your direction to raise you from the dead, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and put him over every principality and power over the head of the church. The enemy doesn't want you to know the power of the gospel. He, don't want you, he wants you to disbelieve the gospel and think that other things are the answer so that he can just have you wallow in the slime and mud. Now, also, he, Paul talks about God's plan to create this beautiful new body called the body of Christ, the church. 
consisting of people who were once, who were formerly enemies of God. But not just enemies of God, but enemies with who? With one another. That's what he says in Ephesians 2, that he has killed the hostility between Jew and Gentile, and he made two into one precious new body. By implication, made one every redeemed people group. But there is an enemy out there who wants us to pick up old hostilities, who actually wants to magnify hostilities by telling half-truths and mistruths, and most of all, to get our eyes off our primary identity, which is not our age or our gender or our ethnicity or our economic level. No, your prevailing identity, if you are a Christian, Paul mentions it over 100 times, you are in Christ. But the enemy doesn't want us to start there. Then you have this. The enemy wants to create a beautiful picture of Christ in your life. He wants you to pursue holiness, to put off the old, and to put on the new, as he says in chapter 4. But there's an enemy, let's be real, who wants you to live as hellishly as the world, right? As coldly as the world, as carnally as the world. And then you hear about God's plan to create a beautiful family structure where there's repentance and reverence and respect and service and submission. But don't we know how much the family is under attack? Within the body of Christ, but with outside the body, in the urban core, 70% of kids do not have a father in the home, which is one, I was just talking to a, a brother that I, that I coach with, uh, my son's a little league team, and we were talking about that, he's an older man, how he's seen such destruction wreaked in the family by not having a father. You see, here, here's the deal, I'm just trying to, to, to put a bunch of stuff in the finally so when we get to our text, we know what we're dealing with. There is you got to be clear on this. An enemy who wants you to doubt the power of the gospel as you wrestle with sin. He wants you to look in other directions. He wants to tear down the blood-bought unity of the church. He wants you to trifle with your call to holiness. He wants to destroy the fabric of the family. Oh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, over spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. So let's look at number one, the reality. We are in a conflict. And, and, and honestly, this point is so clear. I could point to any one of these verses to, make, to substantiate this assertion that we're in a conflict. But let me just, again, point to the signature verse of Ephesians 6, verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities. Four times he says against. He could have just said against and then all four of those things. No, he wants you to know you're in a conflict. Against, 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 against cosmic powers, against spiritual forces of evil. Then verse 11, I think it is, he says um, that we are to put on the whole armor of God. 
Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. You ain't taking up the whole armor of God to, to be a couch potato. You're supposed to take it up because you're going on a combat patrol. He says four times, stand, withstand, stand firm, stand therefore. Then he talks about the, 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 uh, the belt of truth, this H harness, this combat belt. And then he talks about the breastplate of righteousness, a Kevlar vest so shrapnel doesn't fly into your torso. He talks about combat boots, shoes for the, with, that are the gospel. He talks about the shield of faith. He talks about a helmet of salvation. He talks about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, your rifle, your, 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 your saber, whatever. He's talking about warfare. You and I are in a conflict. Whether we realize it or not, or whether you like it or not. You may not be fighting, but forces are fighting against you. And if you read, this is, this is really good stuff. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters. Lord Falgren's letter, uh, Lord Falgren's letter, is it? By uh, Randy Alcorn. They both make the point that the greatest tactic of the enemy is for you not to think of him as real, but rather your problems are exclusively due to your upbringing, to your mental state, to your psychological state, to your physical state to how you've been done wrong from the, or the suffering you've experienced or life hasn't met your expectations or your ethnicity or your economic level and a thousand other things. But this book comes along as it came along for me. Or I should say the God of this book comes along and slaps me in the face and says, oh no. They're, they're, those things definitely do have an effect on you. I'm not minimizing those things I just mentioned. But your ultimate enemy is not flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. You are in a conflict. There is a conflict raging 24-7, not just around us, but against us. So number one, the reality is there's a fight going on. There's a conflict going on. Number two, let's talk about the enemy. The enemy would be demonic forces. Now, our enemies sometimes flesh and blood, of course, Paul had flesh and blood enemies, in other words, people. But he makes the point that the ultimate enemy is actually not people, not flesh and blood, but again, and I'm going to say this verse a lot, rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. That's the fourfold description of our enemy. And again, the enemy doesn't want you to think about this. He wants you to be ignorant about this. He wants you to functionally at least think that he doesn't exist and do day-to-day -day combat operations. I may have been my mom and dad's last-ditch effort for a boy. I'm number four. I had three older sisters. And yes, I was massively spoiled growing up. 
We had a lot of fun as a family. We had this thing about pulling practical jokes on each other. I was probably seven or eight, I don't know. My three sisters were down in the basement and they called me down. It was around Halloween. The lights were off. I walked down those what seemed to be massive stairs at the time. And when I got to the bottom, it felt like I was standing on snakes or massive worms. They had cooked up a bunch of spaghetti noodles, let them cool and put them in the bottom of the stairs. But here's where the real deal took off. Then they flicked on the lights, and there was my sister Wendy. She's kind of shorter, strong. She was a gymnast. And she's sitting there in, in red long johns with a pitchfork and these little devil horns. And uh, let's just say my parents made one of them sleep with me for the next week because I was scared. <laughs> but I got to tell you, the devil is more than some guy in red long johns with a pitchfork. He's more than a joke. He's more than an icon. He's more than the nickname of an athletic team. He's real. Your enemy would be the invisible foes of Satan and the one-third of the angels that fell from heaven and went on his side. Demons, we call them now. And they're described in a fourfold way in verse 12. And when he describes, most commentators would say he's not giving you a rank structure like, you know, lieutenant colonel, major, captain, second lieutenant. It's not, not so much a rank structure. Rather, what you find is the different spheres or medium of influence in which Satan tries to exert his demonic influence. So he starts off with rulers. What's a ruler? He's talking about territorial demons. You know, the scripture does paint the portrait that there are demonic forces assigned to geographic areas. Did you know that? This isn't just charismania, it's Bible. Just like you have human authorities that govern certain geographical regions, the mayors over the city, the governors over the state, the presidents over the country. Well, there are territorial demons. Have you ever considered that? Rulers. There was the prince of Persia. You can read about that in Daniel, I believe. Second of all, he talks about authorities. Now, these authorities aren't geographical demons. Rather, they are the influencers that shape the values of culture. Values like, my truth is my truth. Values like, what, my, what I say my identity is, that's my identity. Now, don't tell me those values do not have a demonic stronghold on our society and are encroaching into the church. Rulers, authorities, and then he says, cosmic powers over this present darkness. You know what that is? That is, these cosmic powers has reference to which, to the means by which these values are imposed upon fallen humanity. Talking about the means of indoctrination. Take entertainment. You know, Satan in Ephesians 2 2 was called the prince of the power of the air. Is all entertainment bad? Of course not. God gives grace through so many ways, but. I think it's telling 
And don't call me just an old legalistic preacher. I think it's telling that a lot of God's people can sing far easier a lot of secular songs more than God's sacred songs. I think that says something about the heart. That we can quote a song line or a movie line a whole lot more easy than we can quote scripture. <laughs> You're getting indoctrinated, baby. That's what's happening. Entertainment, media, government, education. Again, there's good in all of that because of God's common grace, but those are also means of indoctrination in which these values are being pumped mainstream into the artery of people and their thinking. And when he says over this present darkness, he's reminding us of how humanity might want to baptize it with smiles and unicorns and balloons and all that. That's God's take on it, present darkness. And while we're talking about darkness, let me say this. The church has many warts and many blemishes and many blind spots because, after all, the church is made of sinners like us, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. But don't buy the line out there because you won't find one verse for that, that people don't come to Christ because of the church. Jesus said people don't come to Christ because of darkness. John 3, 19, and this is the condemnation, that light has come to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Well, finally, he says, spiritual forces of evil. In other words, these rulers, these authorities, these cosmic powers, you can't see them. They're spiritual forces of evil. And they're in the heavens. They're not in heaven. That means they are kind of in the other realm. But I'm telling you, they are bent. They are hell-bent on your destruction, or at least hell-bent on your dissatisfaction. They don't want you to have an abundant life in Christ. What kind of foothold are you giving these forces? Gregory Peck was a renowned Harvard uh, psychiatrist, well-published, well-respected, all the rest. He, he entered his psychiatric practice not having a biblical worldview. But after thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of counsel, culminating in counseling with a woman named Charlene, he met with her for three years, two to four times a week, 421 sessions in all. He came to believe in the existence of evil forces. He said, Charlene didn't want to change. She just wanted to toy with me. And you can read his account, and through that, he came to believe in the existence of God and ultimately God's Redeemer, Jesus Christ, which is hardly a resume builder for a psychiatrist, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities. Are you aware of that? Now, let, let me be clear here. God alone is omniscient, right? The enemy's potent, but he ain't omnipotent. Only God's all-powerful. The enemy is not omnipresent. Now he does have, again, his hierarchy and spheres of influence. But Satan can't be everywhere. He's a finite being. God's an infinite being. God alone is omnipresent, and God alone is omniscient. God alone knows everything. The devil doesn't. God is God and the devil is not. But I just want to make sure we're clear on that. This is not yin-yang, good and evil equal, right? God, enemy. 
But he is a lion prowling about seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. He does masquerade as a friend, Genesis 3, 5. He does play the part of a Christian preacher, a Christian teacher, a Christian podcaster, 2 Corinthians 11-something. R. Kent Hughes has a great quote. I want to read it to you. I, he said, I am no genius at mathematics. But even with my limited capabilities, I could be terrific if I worked on it for 100 years, maybe, he says. Or what if I had 1,000 years? Given that time, any one of us could become the world's greatest philosopher or psychologist or theologian or linguist. Satan has had multiple millennia to study and master the human disciplines, and when it comes to human subversion, he's the ultimate manipulator. Could it be that he is trying to keep some of us in a spiritual coma by flexing, verse 11, his schemes, his tactics? The old version says his wiles. Now, let me ask you to consider if this satanic strategy has impacted you. Can I do that? indifference. That one was getting me. Didn't I say that? I don't give a rip right now. I'm on his string then. Hopelessness. Turning to God won't make a difference. Prayer won't make a difference. Hopelessness. That's a satanic strategy. Busyness. I'm too busy to press into God. That's like somebody on the Titanic while it's going down getting themselves a doggone pedicure. (laughs) Or how about this? The preoccupation with all the wrong things, even right things, but aren't God things. Family, hobby, job, cause. Would you consider that maybe, maybe, maybe the enemy has taken you hostage with one of those tactics. He targets the newly converted. He targets the afflicted. He targets those who are isolated. Ooh, this is a huge period of isolation. I've read about more pastors quitting the ministry. I shared this with the elders, our last elder meeting. More Christians leaving the church. And more churches just flat out shutting down. And then you add all the societal issues on there, right? (laughs) So do we see this as the people of God? He uses isolation. He uses being idle. He uses dying. Now, I got to hit this third point real quick, okay? What's clear? The reality, we're in a fight. What's clear? The enemy, the invisible forces of demons. And then finally, our responsibility is to fight. Listen, man, if you signed on to become a Christian to join a cakewalk, I don't know what you signed on for. The Christian life is not a cakewalk. It is a call to arms. As I said a while ago, you're not called to be a couch potato. You're, you're, 
you're called to gear up and get out on combat patrol. Becoming a Christian is not an exit from spiritual warfare. It's the entrance. You are now a high-value target for the enemy. Before you were a Christian, you weren't a high-value target. He already had you. Why would he deploy energy in your direction when you already ain't following Christ? But once you follow Christ, you have a big bullseye on your chest. Only we don't see it. That's why he says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He's not saying be strong in yourself and in the strength of your might. He's saying be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. But what that does mean is you have to reject passivity and you got to embrace activity. That's what I need to be reminded of. Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both the will and then the do of his good pleasure. A person who is not working out their salvation may not have it. Or at least they're in a serious spiritual coma. You got to get off the gurney and fight. Pull those tubes off of you, man. Pull that stuff out of you, sis. One of the greatest revival passages, I'm sure we'll come to it in this series, Isaiah 64, these great verses, please pray them. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's what God does in revival. He comes down. But later on, he says, you would not rouse yourselves. You wouldn't wake up. We're called to rouse ourselves and to fight. And to fight, you say, well, how do you fight? Verse 11 makes it clear. You gear up. He says, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you might be able to stand. Again, verse 13, you gear up. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And what about this thing, the evil day? Every day has evil in it in a fallen world. But there are some days that are more evil. You know this in your marriage. You know this with societal issues. There are some days that are more evil, and you're going to have to fight all the more. you got to gear up. And here's what you can do. You can either roll over, stay rolled over, or you can stand up and fight. That's the only option. Ain't no tweener here. You can't roll over and fight. You either roll over or you stand up and fight. And that brings us to the six implements. I'm just going to run through these, all of which overlap, all of which center on the gospel. Again, this is not about spiritual self-resolve. But this is about getting off your spiritual butt and going to the armory and grabbing the armaments that God has graciously gifted you with as a Christian to fight. you got to fasten on, number one, the, the, the belt of truth. You know what that is? First and foremost, the truth of God. That's doctrine. Everybody has a doctrine. The question is, what kind of doctrine? It's biblical doctrine. But it's not just truth about God. It's also truth in a world where we're being played with all kinds of lies from every direction. And this belt doesn't just jump on you. you got to fasten it. you got to reject passivity, and you got to embrace activity. You have to get into God's Word. 
Number two, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is first and foremost the righteousness of Christ himself. This is the essence of the gospel. And, 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 and I'm, no doubt there's some people here who've never trusted Christ. I was 26 years old. I went into a church service like this thinking, these people are crazy, and God opened my eyes. And he opened my eyes with this truth. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it goes, to, here's the mechanics of salvation. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Here's your sin, bam, God placed it on his son, Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. He can place on you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But so easily we forget that, don't we? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, who made an end to all my sin. I got to remember this truth because I forget it. And I start walking in condemnation. But it's also then, this breastplate of righteousness, a daily commitment to live righteously as an expression of our faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And you do that not in your own strength, but because of what he did on the cross. Christ bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, 1 Peter 2.24. Now in two weeks, Pastor Cleet is going to preach on this revival truth. That when revival begins to land on a body of believers, we become freshly pierced by this truth that obedience is not optional for the believer. We walk in righteousness. Number three, for shoes, the readiness of the gospel of peace, he says. There is this irrefutable reality that as we as believers focus on, I'm supposed to be an ambassador of the gospel, it, 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 it impacts how you live. It, it, it impacts how you interact. I, again, I'm, I'm just going to be honest here. At the baseball field yesterday, in the flesh, I want to take a guy's head off. We actually had a conflict about a week ago. And my kids kind of heard what was going on. But I knew, how can I be an ambassador for Christ if I take him behind the backstop and clean his clock? Right? I'm just being honest. Not that there's not a time for a man to defend his family. That wasn't that kind of thing. I had, I got to go to the ballpark remembering I'm supposed to be an ambassador for Christ. I can't act like the world. And you know what? As I focus on that, it motivates me to keep the plain thing the main thing and not get lost in all the things in the world and the rebellion of God tells me that I need to do and say and not what this word tells me. Number four, the shield of faith. Now, faith is a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but faith, does, faith doesn't mean you have to have flabby hands. <laughs> what do I mean by flabby hands? I, that, was a, that was a bad tw twist of metaphor. It wasn't in my notes. That came out of me right now. <laughs> what I mean is flabby faith thinks, oh, I don't need to exercise faith because I just have faith. No, 
Faith is a gift from God, but you're still called to exercise faith. God gives you faith, but he doesn't believe for you. You believe for you. So the, the enemy is going to whisper all kinds of things in your ears, brothers and sisters. He is, after all, Revelation 12.10, the accuser of the brethren. He's going to whisper, and the rub is this. You, you don't know that he's doing this, right? This is just your thoughts. You're laying there in the middle of the night. You're, you're driving to work, whatever the case may be. You don't know he's doing it, but he's, he's launching fiery darts at you. And these darts, which can only be extinguished by you choosing to hold up the shield of faith, these darts include this. You are a loser. How many times do you ask God forgiveness for that? Or, God is not for you, you chump. He's got you in the back row. God has no back row. If you're in his kingdom, you're at his dinner table. Prayer doesn't matter. You prayed for this and it never happened. Well, read the Bible. It might give you an answer about that. And we struggle with that. God can't change the situation. Blah, 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 blah. But only it's not blah, 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 blah. It's stab, 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 stab. Right into your heart. The promises of God extinguish those flaming darts. So let me ask you this. Shield. How many promises have you stored up by faith? You can spout a song line, but can you spout a promise of God? Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote a book called Check, a little devotional, it's awesome, called Checkbook of Faith. And by the way, this man had bouts of depression for physiological reasons. Uh, he had gout. Um, he went through something called the downgrade controversy where many of his peers were starting to turn from the gospel. It led him to the grave early at 57. But out of that fiery trial, he wrote the checkbook of faith. And this is what he says in his, in his preface. I read it this morning. Some fail to place the endorsement of faith upon the check, the promise of God, and so they get nothing. And others are slack in presenting it, and, and these also receive nothing. This is not the fault of the promise, but of those who do not act on it. Don't let the name it and claim it gospel, which is no gospel at all, steer you away from claiming the promises of God. Because God has given us promises that we will not experience unless we co-sign the check, and we, unless we receive it by faith. So how big is your shield? When's the last time you took a promise of God, boom, to stop a fiery dart? Can't believe that brother said that. He must have done that because of fill in the blank. How could my husband say that? He must not fill in the blank. How could my friend? We, we got to start putting up the shield of faith. And it's interesting, there's two kinds of shields. There's a small shield for when people were in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and there was a larger four-and-a-half by two-foot two foot by four-and-a-half-foot shield that you would do in formation. A whole platoon would be out. They would launch a fiery salvo of flaming darts, and they would put them up together to have a protective wall, which reminds us, sometimes we need to cover our brothers and sisters in the promises of God. Sometimes we need to come around each other because we're wounded. 
And maybe instead of attacking, we pray for and we hold up a promise of God. I got to move. The helmet of salvation, the helmet of salvation. This is probably referring to, and I won't go to the text, probably referring to future salvation, glorification, based on 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 and 9. You can check that out later. But what's true, and this is called the helmet, is where does the battle rage so often? Between our ears, right? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, strongholds in our thinking. And what we need to do is understand this. Satan would like to crush your head, but he can't because Jesus crushed his head on the cross himself. And so when we're suffering, we say this. Here's a promise of God for this light, momentary affliction. This don't seem so light. This doesn't seem so momentary. This light, momentary affliction is producing for you an eternal weight of glory. As we look not at the things that are unseen, seen rather, but the things that are seen. Sorry, Cassie, to point at you like that, okay? All right. <laughs> Do you get me on this? We put on the helmet of salvation. We look at the big picture. God ain't going to lose me. And he's doing something even in the grind. Finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I took Titus a couple months ago to the DIA, and one of the coolest things that we looked at there was, do you remember, I think, I don't know if it's the first or second floor, they have those knights in the knight's armor, right? And that display, I mean, who went like that? Who would, what young buck went like that? All their armor and their, their mail, they call it, uh, kind of their chain link defense, and then, and then their sabers. Really cool. But those swords, those short swords and long swords and broad swords and sabers ain't going to do a stinking thing while they're still in the case. you got to take it up. It's the same thing with the Word of God. You can say, I'm a Christian. You can have a Bible. You can have a Bible app. But if the Word is not getting in your heart, it's just in the case. It may look good for those around you, but it ain't going to help you fortify you to fight with the Word of God. And here the word isn't lagos, which refers to kind of the word of, of God in, in, in breadth. It's the word rhema, which is like a little short sword, a specific statement of Scripture. Wordless Christians live worthless lives in the eternal perspective. But Scripture-saturated Christians live eternally impactful lives. And I heard somebody say this, this book is more powerful than nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are pretty powerful. Like, they can blow you to death, and if you're not a Christian, they can blow you to hell. But this book can blow you to heaven. This book can translate somebody out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light because of the truth that's in this sacred book. But it's not only a book that can save this is a book that can sustain you and satisfy you, both in the mountaintops of life and also the deep, deep valleys of life, and you will have both. But maybe that's the rub for you. Maybe this is what it boils down to. You really aren't so sure. That's okay. You can be honest with your doubts. G. Campbell Morgan, 
one of the greatest British preachers ever last century. He had started his ministry, and he found himself precisely in that position. All these theories and all this stuff coming his direction, the Enlightenment, French D, all this other stuff. And he started to wonder, is this book really true? Do I really want to spend my life <laughs> proclaiming it? And he was having a crisis of faith. So what he did is he locked up all his books, other books in cupboards, and he actually, of course, had many Bibles as a preacher, but he wanted to read a Bible he had never set his eye on. So he went to the store and brought a brand new Bible. And he said, for the next however long, however long it takes, I am going to read this book. And God, this is what I want you to do. Either you convince me it's true, or I'll be convinced it's not. I'm either going to live my life according to this book, or I'm not. And he spent, I don't know, 30, 60 days, every day, shut up in his room, reading the Bible, and he became convinced this is the word of the living God. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to stop straddling the fence. Either this is the word of God or it's not the word of God. These are either life-giving words or they're just man-made words. Maybe that's the call of the hour for you. That's where fighting would start for you. Now, I end very, very br briefly with the most important part of this section, so I should have left more time, but I did not. But I do, I would be doing damage to this text if I didn't quickly mention this. What does he end with here? What does he end with? Appreciate that, brother. I just want everyone else to say that. No. <laughs> he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Baby, this is the most important part right here. And most commentators make that point because he doesn't even bother to use a metaphor here. He doesn't say like the artillery of prayer. He just says pray. He, he gets metaphors out of the way here. Four times he says all, 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 with all perseverance, praying for all the saints. And it is a continuous participle, meaning you don't stop doing this. You will never, ever experience personal revival if you do not pray. What right do we have to ask God to come down if we're not willing to gather and go up to him? Rouse yourself. Why don't you come here Wednesday night to pray with us for God to pour out his spirit? For him to do what only he can do. For him to come down. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Brian, would you come, brother? We're gonna sing. If you're not a believer, don't feel like you need to sing. Just consider what we're singing about. 
And if it all seems foolish to you, don't worry, it did for me for 26 years. But fortunately, some people said, Mike, this stuff is real. You ought to really consider it. And if you are a believer, man, I think, I think our praise ought to go up to God. Or maybe you, just need, maybe you just need to kneel somewhere and pray right now. Maybe the Lord is speaking to you right now by his spirit that you have you've rolled over. You haven't, you haven't put the gear on. You've been sidelined. He, and now he's saying, stand up. If that is your desire, that is only because the Holy Spirit whoo, is sweeping through you right now. So just say yes and amen to that.